0: When you're faced with adversity, do you flounder or fly? I'm Simon Ratcliffe and on Turning the Tables, I share candid, powerful stories of people who have turned around adversity in their personal or business lives to find new purpose and meaning. In each episode, I will dig deep to uncover the mindsets that turn adversity into advantage. What happens when you grow up as a child and a woman in the shadow of a hugely successful, driven, figurehead father you love and admire? And when you follow that father into the high-octane, high-risk, boom-and-bust world of business? How does this shape you as a person? And what happens when that father you loved and admired is gone? It was also that sense of loss,
1: you know, that like it was like an oak tree had just gone.
0: In this week's episode, we delve into the sometimes brutal world of finance, venture capital and startups, a world of masculine egos, high stress, risk and reward. I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by Jane Murray, a trained lawyer, investment fund manager and now, CEO of Peacebeam, a startup dedicated to bringing small acts of kindness into our world. We started by talking about Jane's early life and how she got to where she is today.
1: Well, I think so. Well, you know, a kind of a potted history. I have been a lawyer for about 25 years now, terribly long time, actually. Um, I still actually am. And I started um, I started out with no particular direction in mind, I think. I was quite young when I went to university and largely because my dad told me to, you know, who was one of those. I was, educa- I'm, I was actually, I was born in England, educated uh, and in Ireland and lived there until I was about 24. And because of those kind of moves around, I was quite young when I... Uh, did my A level equivalents, and and I had no sense. Well, I did actually have a sense of what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an artist, but in those days, um, that wasn't really considered a job in Ireland. So, <laughs> so um, so I did law, and I'm very grateful that I did actually, in hindsight. And then i came to i came to london with the intention of going to new york as you know is as is the want of a lot of irish people and and you know that was kind of the the idea is that you would you, know, you would go on somewhere else and and america was quite a big draw so i came to london and i did the new york bar so that i could move to new york and uh, i never got there i did the new york bar i meant I, I i'm also an attorney but i i, I never went there in the end And I was working in London as an employment lawyer initially. Um, And my father was very instrumental in my life. He had been very successful in mobile technology. So he was one of the, there was a particular kind of cohort uh, in in Ireland, actually. A lot of this happened in Ireland in the kind of late 90s. And my dad, I should say, was, was somebody who came from a kind of a farming background in the West of Ireland. He was completely mm. self-made, um, a really, you know, remarkable character and had this extraordinary vision for, you know, what the world would become from a kind of communications point of view. So he was really instrumental in a lot of the infrastructure that we now, you know, all of our kind of platforms and our apps and all the rest of it um, run on. Originally, he, he actually put the cabling, you know, the transatlantic cables that the internet now runs on. And all of that, he was involved in all of that. And then in text messaging and then in mobile comms and, you know, when 3G licensing came out and all the rest of it. So he made, you know, a great deal. He was very successful in that, made a great deal of money. And he was a born entrepreneur and... He wanted to set up a venture capital fund. And uh, so he asked me to join him when I was kind of, I guess, my late 20s. I'd been working for quite a while at that stage. And I agreed. And that's what I spent probably, you know, 15 years doing was running uh, running a venture fund, um, specializing in startups, seed kind of companies.
0: I was going to ask you, what was a childhood like growing up with someone who clearly was so successful and driven and doing such amazing things? How how did it affect your childhood?
1: Well, I would say, you know, it's, it is it is very hard, I think, to stand, you know, completely outside and objectively about one's own life, really. But I think with the benefits of, you know, age and hindsight, I can say that it was... um you know there were elements of it that were just completely nuts really and at the same time it was because of my mum's influence you know it was also very very stable very um you know we were very fortunate we we had this kind of tremendous stability from from my mum and my dad actually wasn't very present when i was young yeah so he was like always on a plane i mean until literally literally until like a week before he died, he was on a plane. I mean, it was just an extraordinary uh, that's how he was made. um, and so he wasn't he was probably he was present, but as almost like a mythical figure, i think, until until we were older. so you know that creates a lot of uh, what's the word? There are certain archetypes that go with all of that hmm. uh, ways of relating, I think, to to power, particularly to male power. I think that that's, you know, that, those, that sort of set up. And, I, you know, I, th- I think it's not an uncommon one, you know, regardless yes. of, you know, relative levels of success. But I think that that was a very, very common experience for people of my generation, you know. I mean, it was just, that's how it was. When I was younger, I found it very, very difficult. In what, in what way? Where people have a very high tolerance for risk, you create extremely stressful boom or bust environments and and they're great when you're in a boom right <laughs> but it's very it's very challenging when you're in a bust and those kind of mentalities as well don't tolerate weakness really so you know it's kind of you 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 have to have that stoic ability to keep going despite the clearly obvious signs right that things aren't great
0: can you sort of point to anything in terms of how how you've developed as a, as a person that, that relates back to, to yeah,
1: so I was obviously I was running this fund and, and and really on the outside I think that really did seem to be kind of having it all, but it came with very intense uh, pressure. It also came with a kind of a a phenomenon that is um, associated with kind of family-run businesses, right? So nothing is wholly professional and nothing is wholly emotional. So you get that mix. And I also uh, became like a lightning rod for a lot of the kind of resentment and uh, anger that would have been directed towards my father. So you tend to absorb a lot of negativity. And I think that really started to take its toll for me around my... Kind of mid mid thirties was when I really felt that, you know, I was I was struggling to reconcile my personal values with kind of what I did in the world. But the result of that was that it pushed me into, in the direction of a, a fairly intense spiritual path and sort of a, a personal development, which was rather at odds, I think, with what I did in my day job. But ultimately. I think that saved my sanity, and it it gave me a counterbalance to a, a very extreme world that I was in.
0: Tell me a bit about that. I mean, how how did you cope under those circumstances? I don't
1: know. I think the answer is, for a few years, I probably didn't, and I made some frankly inexplicable decisions. Really, I think, which is what you do, and and I, you know. What I have always tended to do is to go to that kind of extreme of hard work. So I was brought up with that ethic that, I mean, a very unhealthy one, actually, which is unless you are absolutely stressed out of your head, you're not working. Like you're somehow lazy. So I was I was very much brought up with that. And again, I think that's quite common to people of my generation
0: and from that kind of
1: background. Yeah.
0: I was going to say, I think that's pretty much societal view for a lot of lots of people that, that, you know, that's hence we we all work, you know, extreme hours, um, business is expected of people somehow.
1: Where you know, and it's such a, I mean, it's such a delusion because people are really not productive and they are not making good decisions because they're incapable of doing that because we're not designed... To work in that way, mentally, emotionally, or physically, we're not designed to work yeah. in that way. So, so what I did was I thought it would be a great idea to um, open a French restaurant. And uh, and that's what I did as a way, because I felt that, you know, I, I needed a creative outlet. I didn't feel that I kind of had a creative outlet. And I had, you know, if you remember, initially, I had wanted to be, <laughs> to be an artist. My life would have been very different if I'd taken that route. And, and I was always looking for something creative to do. Mm. Um, but I didn't have anybody to speak to who could counterbalance, really, my own, my own tendencies for that kind of extreme hard work, very high risk profile of things you might do with your time. So, and I look at it now, Simon, and I just think... I mean, uh, uh, what on earth was I thinking? So yeah, I opened I opened a French restaurant, which I had for about five years, and it probably was the most instructive learning ground that I have had. But it was also it also cost me in terms of health, relationships, arguably sanity, and financially.
0: Do you think that? Your decision to do that at the time was somehow or other almost a sort of emotional escape.
1: It, it absolutely was, and it was also something it was it was something that my dad had absolutely no interest in. And you know, the thing is, Simon, I, I don't have there is nothing about my life or, or you know the things that I have done that I would change, you know sitting from the position that I'm in now. But it's not right to say that people shouldn't have regrets because I think, I think regrets are an absolutely natural and normal part of a well-lived life. I think it's very important to make peace with them. So I've made peace with those decisions that I made, but some of them, yeah, I do regret. They weren't, you know, if I think if I'd had me to speak to when I was 35, I perhaps would have done something else than open a restaurant. As well as trying to do everything else,
0: so you obviously threw a lot into to the restaurant. What what happened in the end?
1: In the end, well, in the end, I uh, I, I sold it on. I mean, it was you know, it was it it was another one of those boom and bust things. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. it did really well, and sometimes it was really very difficult. Um, and also, you know, I realized what I really don't have a talent for, and that is management. I am not a good manager. I'm a good leader, but I'm not a good manager. And there is a distinction between the two. And I learned that very painfully um, when I was running a restaurant. You know, being able to manage people really effectively is a particular skill set and um, that most entrepreneurs in fact don't have. And it's very common for people to say, oh I don't really enjoy my job, but right? And I think, you know, we do, we just don't pause enough to consider why we're spending actually, you know, these days, 90% of our time doing things that we really don't enjoy. And then we have long dialogues about, you know, well-being and mental health. I, I, I think if, if, we, if we looked at what we're actually doing um, most of the time and how we're overriding our natural instinct for things, that would be much more instructive for us. And I think that that taught me because, I mean, part of the keeping that restaurant going was that kind of bloody mindedness that goes with okay, I really don't like any of this, but I'm just going to keep doing it because that's what you do
0: okay, so so you sold the restaurant on what what did you sort of learn from that experience that you then took on into to the next thing you did?
1: I think probably actually what I learned from that was humility and um, and compassion uh, really for myself, because I think these things, you know, we must be able to feel them for ourselves initially. And I understood as well what humility actually means in a real sense. Because I think, again, in our culture, we think we associate words like humility, or indeed kindness with weakness. And we think, you know, the to be to be kind of humble means to be to be weak and 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 somehow therefore not capable of competing in this very high octane rugged individualism that is the the kind of the prevailing norm and i think it was it was the first time that i understood that humility is a recognition of oneself as you actually are you know that's what humility means is really understanding yourself as you are you know seeing yourself Warts and all, as Oliver Cromwell would say. And that and and being able to accept all of those. So so some of the the kind of decisions um that I made during that time, um, even the overall decision and having to accept at the end of that um cycle that it, you know, I had made a really bad decision doing that. It had impacted every single area of my life. And and I was totally responsible for the consequences of that. And there were events in my personal life as well that were very, very difficult, and then you know we had the 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 crash in two thousand and eight um from you know which impacted absolutely every aspect of everybody's life one way or another, and again it's only with the benefit of you know eleven years of hindsight or whatever it is that we can see that so that began a cycle within the the fund of some decisions that you know it, it sort of almost inevitably led to a dramatic decline in that, and that was happening over a period of a few years. And then my dad died just very, very suddenly in two thousand and fifteen. Mm. Well, what? How did he die? Um, he well, he had he had uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and he died as a complication, really, of of that. It was um okay. a pulmonary embolism in the end but it, it, it was so sudden and so out of the blue you know he'd he hadn't been well he'd gone into hospital he was released from hospital everybody fully expected that he would make a recovery and then he just died and that was so so literally within the space of about 10 days we had gone from one way of being and one sense of identity to absolutely nothing it was like it was like a kind of a scorched earth and and i you know that the, the, they were a, a, even apart from the actual kind of practicalities of what was happening it was also that sense of loss you know that like it was like a an oak tree had just gone
0: how did it impact you personally
1: well it i mean in in every conceivable way so you know my livelihood my kind of sense of identity, mm. this person who had always been very, you know, sort of present in my life and like, and kind of like a, 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 I don't know, like a compass um, had gone. A- and then I had to deal with the aftermath of all of that collapse, which was extremely unpleasant. But... Having said that, you know, that I mean, there is a period of time that there's maybe about six months that I just really, it's very difficult to kind of pick anything out of. It was just, it's like a, you, you know, you literally are putting one foot in front of the other and you're just dealing with things. Uh, so that was late 2015 that that happened. And then in the middle of 2016, we had the Brexit vote in the UK. And then the beginning of the what turned out to be the Trump election cycle in the U.S., and I think that interestingly, that 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 sort of external shock woke me up out of the shock that I had experienced, you know, in the with the death of um, with the death of my dad and everything that had to be dealt with. And I really, it's for some reasons that I can't really account for now. It 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 totally crystallized for me that sense that had been growing of the importance of reconciling those two kind of um, opposites in me, that kind of world of chaos and the world of order, and expressing that in in a way where that was completely in line with
0: the with my own personal values. Digging into that a bit further. So when you talk about sense of order, what what did that mean to you? What how did that manifest for you?
1: Well, I think. On one level, I think, it, you know, initially in my life, you know, being a, being a lawyer and having the kind of order of that profession and a way of viewing the world was how I would have described that. But over the years that evolved into a sense of the order that we create through our intentions and through the small acts in our life that are actually what determine the course of our lives, that that weave the, the overall tapestry. And for me, all the way through my life, you know, against this very dramatic backdrop, I've always been overwhelmed, really, by the impact of small acts of kindness, of service, of love, that and, and their immense power, you know, the immense power to change trajectory, to change minds, to soften hearts, to... And I guess maybe, you know, it was against because it was against that, you know, rather savage backdrop of a very corporate world, a very masculine world, a very individualistic and self-centred world, that, you know, perhaps you could see, I could see that with such clarity. It's through how we live and how we live in the small moments, not in our grand gestures, that we create the order of our lives and we can draw something meaningful and beautiful out of chaos. I
0: think. Yeah, I mean, in some senses, what you're talking about—the sort of kindness and compassion—are almost the opposite end of the spectrum, aren't they? For, from your experiences in, in in the investment world.
1: Yes, they are. Yeah, definitely. But I would say that it, it, they have also always been present in my life. You know, the the influence, the influence of you know, I would say my mum particularly. She was she still is somebody who continuously emphasised the importance of compassion, of forgiveness, of saying you're sorry, of doing the right thing, of, but, you know, all of those things. They were really deeply reinforced and but by my dad as well, but, but actually kind of, you know, at the, at the real ground level by my mum. So it was always, it's always been something of profound importance to me and I think was part of the reason, that you know, those two elements were, was part of the reason why I was experienced a great deal of friction in the kind of professional life that I was in and in the world that I was in.
0: Oh, very good, very good. So, I mean, if you track back the journey you talked about, what do you think you learned which has brought you to where you are today with Peacebeam and what you're doing? How has that adversity that you faced at various points in your career got you to where you are? I suppose, that, I mean, there are so many things that
1: I could say to that, but what really comes now, I think, is is contentment, learning to be content in ordinariness, you know, and I guess maybe that's an aspect of the kind of humility that I was talking about earlier. One of the hardest things for me living you know with it in the background with all of that kind of drama and you know excitement and high octane kind of going on in the background is that I was completely incapable of being content um being in my ordinariness you know and I think and I think that that is one of I think of all of the things that face us as a kind of crises um Globally, I think our inability to be ordinary is, is, is one of the biggest ones. I think, I think that that is at the root of our environmental crisis, right? That we, you know, we, 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 that needs to, to, to have more, to strive more, to produce more, to be more, to be, you know, it's that, that endless movement forward. But, you know, the ordinariness of, of our lives. <clears throat> those small moments, right? The beauty that's in, I don't know, a, you know, a loving glance or a kind word, right? That, that is your life, right? That's what it's made up oh. of. Oh. Um, and I think, I think if I've taken anything from all of the kind of adversity and, and the experiences that I've had is to deeply value that, you know, just the ordinary moments of your day, because that's where your living is.
0: I'm thinking there must be many people in particularly in the business world that you've been dealing with who at the back of their mind feel feels exactly the same as you do but perhaps hasn't been able to articulate it or or allow themselves to bring it into their consciousness. What would your advice to them be?
1: I you know, it's always the same. It's just start with the small acts. Just start by introducing something really tiny into your day and make it a practice like just decide that on your commute in the morning that you're going to not look at your device that you're going to look after out of the train window and notice
0: sort of everyday things really
1: decide that instead of criticizing yourself every time you think you should have worked harder or anything that you're, you're that you're not Like it's those really small, really simple things. You start to build almost like a muscle of possibility in yourself. Especially, I think, as you get a bit older, you know, into your kind of 40s and 50s, where you're already quite tired, right? Most people have had like a lot of living behind them at that stage. The idea of kind of ripping it all up and starting again, is really it's very overwhelming it's very it's very hard and i think that that's where we can become very dispirited and we can look at our we can look at our lives with tremendous dissatisfaction but i think to 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 start to remake one's life you have to start really again just in the ordinariness of it you know if you're used to having crosswords with somebody all the time make a decision that you know on one day that you're not and just see what opens up in that space that's where real change can start to happen in those in those small
0: moments so we should just track back and and tell people exactly what a peace beam is
1: so what we do is that we produce um short guided meditations which are known as peace beams And the idea of those meditations is that quickly, in five minutes, you can get yourself in a very stressful part of your day into a coherent state of heart and breath rhythm that we will then be able to activate those feelings uh, that are latent in all of us and we just need them to be activated and to be reminded of them, those feelings of connection, of compassion and of kindness and then the Peace Beam part of it is, is that we actually invite you then to make that energy available to everybody you meet during the day. If we, if we can master small acts of kindness in the ordinary moments of every day, that's the most powerful way that we have of changing the world that we live in. Peace Beam is available on uh, a number of different apps. We were originally going to build our own app, but then we, you know, then we had that thought of does the world need another app? And I think the answer is no. Um, so we're available on other apps. We're available on Insight Timer and on Meditation Studio. And we're also available, we produce our Peace Beams via um, audiobooks, So we're available on Audible and Nook and all kinds of outlets. So.
0: That's been a really interesting discussion, Jane. Thank you so much for giving us your time.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's really lovely to speak to you. Brilliant. Thanks, Jane. Thanks.
0: So what can we take away and learn from this episode? I felt Jane's points about not listening to our instinct and making choices driven by expectation and societal pressure is really supported by some of the latest neuroscience behind gut feelings. The gut actually communicates through neuropeptides that release serotonin into the brain. So literally, the gut communicates with the brain. So perhaps trusting your instinct is very real and something we should do more often so next time you have a gut instinct trust it go with it and see where it takes you it was interesting that the dramatic events around the loss of jane's father was the catalyst for her to find a new career direction that fitted more with her values and was a stark contrast to the harsh world of finance and venture capital that had been the backdrop for her early career. Finally, I thought Jane very powerfully talked about small acts and how small acts and small steps can incrementally achieve great things in your personal life or in the world. Her new business, Peacebeam, is a great example of how that might help to build a better world for us all to live in. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning the Tables. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and be sure to listen out for the next episode where I again will be exploring with my guests how they turned adversity into advantage. See you next time. Go safely.